We'll turn with me, if you would, to the book of Joel, as we are continuing our series through this uh, very edifying and needful, yet sometimes neglected minor prophet. I know the bulletin says we'll be looking at verses 12 through 27 this morning. We'll actually end our reading at verse 18. And I must confess that throughout this week, I was wondering if we would be able to get through all these verses, all these things, and certainly God has answered that in a way that I didn't expect. So we'll just look at verses 12 through 18 of Joel chapter 2, and I will begin reading there at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people. Consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? That's in this reading here, and we'll go to our God and ask for his blessing in a time of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the book of Joel, for the way that it speaks to us even now, thousands of years later, in a different setting on the other side of the world. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit that inspired these prophecies, not only to be given, but to be recorded and to be handed down to us. We ask that he would be with us and illumine us to understand these texts, that we would see the glories of Christ and our salvation, that we would truly understand what it means to repent. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just as a slight reminder of where we've been in the book of Joel, Joel comes to the people of Judah, it would seem, in a time when we are not sure. We could say this may be after the exile or before. It's a little bit difficult for us to really know because Joel doesn't really give us many details as far as uh, specifics. We don't know who was on the throne or if there was a king on the throne. We don't know what the situation was internationally around Israel and Judah. We don't know a lot of things about these uh, details, but we do know a lot about what was happening in the land of Judah at this time. We do know that locusts had come, that it was a swarm unlike anyone had ever remembered. That this was something that had come in and really just devastated the land. It had taken away the crops, not only for this year and this harvest that they were dealing with, but for the coming year and the coming harvest as well. And so there was really two lost years here to the locusts, at least as they come in and they eat everything and they even take the bark off the trees. It's just a land that's barren that's left. God's land, the land flowing with milk and honey, has become just a wilderness. But we've also seen that God himself sounded the alarm. Now, this was always meant to be a preview of the coming day, a day of judgment even greater than the day when the locusts swarmed in into Judah. This was always meant to look ahead to the day of the Lord and the destructive judgment that was coming. And that every preview of this final judgment, this final day of the Lord, is an opportunity. It's meant to give us reason to repent, to trust in God, and that's where we begin today. So we'll see especially two headings uh, this morning. The first is repentance, starting in verse 12. We see at the beginning of our passage this morning, and even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. 
And so this is really the second time that we've seen the Lord speak to his people directly. He's spoken, of course, through Joel. He is his prophet. He is his mouthpiece. He is his messenger, the one he has sent to tell his people of various things that he wants them to know. But now he is directly speaking to his people through Joel. These are the exact words of God as he comes to his people and begins to once again tell them not only what has happened and why, but what their response ought to be. We see here that there's a change that begins in chapter 2, verse 12, that really marks the difference between the first part of the book of Joel and the second half, as we'll be seeing in the weeks and in the months to come. This is a difference in tone now, that things are beginning to change. And boys and girls, I don't need to tell you that sometimes when you're in trouble with your parents, you can know you're in trouble, not even by what your parents are saying, but by how they're saying it. I know it's very common for parents to... uh, speak to their children when they've done something wrong, when they've done something naughty with their full name. And my full name is Christopher Russell Smith, so I had something of a few extra seconds to prepare myself for what was going to happen when I was younger. But I didn't even have to hear my entire name said to realize this tone is a tone of trouble. This tone is a tone of judgment. And it's something that I certainly deserve, and it's something that means that something is coming to me that I will not enjoy. We know the tone is a big deal. It's something that helps us to understand communication. In the book of Joel, we see the tone begin to change here. Although we've seen evidences and hints of God's grace and mercy throughout this book, throughout this section that deals with the locusts and the ultimate locust invasion, the ultimate locust swarm of the day of the Lord that's coming, now we begin to see God really speaking in grace and in mercy to his people. Remember, there are two kinds of messages that prophets would bring. They would bring messages of judgment Messages of condemnation and wrath, but they would also often bring messages of hope, messages of blessing, messages of grace and mercy from God. Often, within the same prophetic utterance, you'll find both present. That's what we find here in the book of Joel. And so we begin to see this change, this verse 12, and the idea of returning is the first command we read in the book of Joel since chapter 2, verse 1, where we read, sound an alarm. And so God has commanded his people to do two things, really, in this chapter. To sound an alarm, to recognize the fact that judgment has come and judgment is coming, and to repent or to return to him. He is commanding us to respond to this in the right way. So this is a call to repentance. And notice, especially with me, verse 17, as we jump to the end of our passage this morning. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep, and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? And so we see here that the priests are asked and told, really, to intercede for the people. Now, this is not a shocking thing to any of these uh, Judahites who had heard these words. That's what priests were meant to do. God had set up these things, boys and girls, we read about in the Torah and the Pentateuch in the first five books of the law that God had set up the way that he wanted Israel to run as his people, as his kingdom, as his nation. And part of what was to happen was the priests were meant to intercede for the people. And as God is calling his people to repent, as he's already, through Joel, called for a national day, really of fasting, or for a national time of coming to the temple and weeping before God, he's telling the priests to do what they mean, mean to do, what they need to do, what they've been commanded to do from the beginning, to intercede for the people, to go between the people and God. And it's quite a picture as we see it, as we understand really what it was that was happening here. As Joel is telling the priests to do these things, we have to understand that what the temple was was meant to be a a small picture, uh, a slightly uh, different picture of what Israel was as a whole. 
that God, the Lord himself, Yahweh, was at the center of their life, even as he was in the midst of their people in the Holy of Holies, in the most holy place. And the people were surrounding him, and they were in the outer court, and that's the picture that we have as the people of of Israel, the people of Judah, have gathered together in repentance for this national day of mourning, really. What they've done is they've come and they've gathered around Yahweh. They've gathered around the temple. They've gathered around the place where God specially dwells with his people. And God is commanding the priests to be in between. And so we can think of this as concentric circles, that Yahweh's in the middle, and then the priests, and then the people. It's meant to be this idea of the priests can go to the people for God and to God for the people, that they are meant to act in the function in the same way that God has told them to do from the beginning. And what are they meant to call the people to do? What are they doing as they're leading the people in lamentation for the sins that they have committed? You'll notice that as we go through the book of Joel, no specific sin is really mentioned. It's difficult to really nail down if there was a specific thing that led to this locust invasion or if it was just a series of things. But it seems to be really more of an attitude or a way of life that had led to God's judgment upon his people. And so as they're calling for lament, they're calling for repentance to God, what the priests are doing are they are leading the people, they are ministering in the midst of the temple in a way that's meant to be an example for the people. To call out to God in true repentance, to call out to God in true loyalty. Notice that with me at the beginning of verse 13, rend your hearts and not your garments. That's what the Lord says to his people. That's what the priests were meant to really model for them. It's quite a picture, isn't it? We know that in those days they had different forms of weeping and of mourning than we do, that oftentimes compared to them we're quite uh, stale, maybe we could say. We're at least reserved, that we don't really wear our emotions on our sleeves in the same way they did, that someone asks you, how are you, and their expected answer is, I'm doing well, even if your entire life is falling apart. It was somewhat different in Judah's day, that mourning and weeping were expected parts of life. And that you would know exactly how someone was doing by what they were wearing and how they were going about their lives. That oftentimes sackcloth and ashes were parts of the mourning process. And in order to put on the sackcloth, often they would tear their clothes first as a sign of distress, as a sign of mourning, as a sign perhaps of terror and these different sorts of things. These negative emotions, these negative feelings that were coming upon them were meant to lead to the tearing of their clothes. But Yahweh the Lord places his finger right on the problem here tells us really what the problem was with Judah. He tells them to rend their hearts and not their garments, to not just go about this in the outward way, not just to follow the motions, not to just to pay God lip service and to look like you're following along, but to truly repent, to truly tear your heart in recognition of your sin and the fact that you are a sinner before a holy God, to recognize that you yourself have sinned against him. It's something that should come to us as well. We know, though, that many of us have grown up in this church, although many of us have also come to it later in life, and there are any number of experiences in people in this congregation, but Joel helps us to remember something, that merely coming to church, merely following after your family, merely having these things heard with your ears and following along outwardly is not enough, that God, through the prophet Joel, reminds us to rend our hearts and not just our garments to truly repent and believe and not just to go through the motions and not just to go through the outward way of doing things. To truly repent. And so we can ask at this point, what is repentance really then? If it's more than just fulfilling the outward responsibilities, more than just rending your garments as it were, what does it truly mean to rend your heart, to repent to God, to return to him? 
Well, it means agreeing with God about your sin. It means agreeing with him that you have sinned against his holy name, that you have sinned against his holy law, that you yourself are a sinner deserving of condemnation, deserving of hell. It's confessing this sin to him, confessing to him that you have done these things, whatever they may be, and it's truly turning. It goes hand to hand, hand in hand, with the idea of faith in Christ and Christ alone. That's how we proclaim it, to repent and to believe, to believe and to repent. That's what God is calling his people to do here in Joel. It's what he's calling us to do as well, each and every single day of our lives. To repent of our sins, to turn to him, to return to him, to call out to him for his grace and mercy, to call out to him in faith. And so we can ask at this point, okay, this is what Joel is telling the people to do. And I know in my own life, in my own experience, I've seen various things that are happening. We can all think, I'm sure, uh, if we've been in the church for very long, of those who have walked away, who perhaps have experienced the sacrament of baptism, who have been in the church for various different amounts of time and have just gone away, who were born into covenant households, as we would say, and have walked away from it. We know that the Lord is doing things that we can often not see. Sometimes it can seem as if, well, has the covenant promises failed? Has God failed in what he has promised to his people? Has God no longer keeping the things that he said he would do? Is he no longer keeping his promises to us as his covenant people? And Joel comes along and tells us that's not the answer. Joel comes along and says the answer to these different things, to the stresses and to the problems that we may see in the church is not to abandon the covenant, to abandon the promises that he's given to us, to abandon the forms that he's made us uh, walk in, but to lean into them. Notice that Joel tells them to rend their hearts and not just their garments, but he also tells them to do many other things that are very part and parcel of the worship of Israel. He doesn't say, well, there hasn't been repentance, and so dispense with the temple and the priesthood, but he tells them to use them. He doesn't say, dispense with mourning, but do it from the heart. It's a command to us that God is calling us to see these things, perhaps to understand in our lives and the pain and the suffering of seeing those walk away and to understand that the solution is not to walk away from God's promises. The solution is not to look for something else. The solution is not to abandon the covenant that God has given to us and has shown us through various things, but to lean into what it truly is. Don't just observe, but decide. We see in verse 16, this is a call to the entire people of Israel. Gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. And so old and young, male and female, even those who were newly married were called to dispense with the things that they had been doing that they normally would do, to leave all those things behind and to come to God at his temple. If you're familiar with some of the passages in the Old Testament, particularly in Deuteronomy, you know that, for example, when a man was first married that first year, he was supposed to have uh, life, uh, a life free of military service and perhaps even other things having to do with the civic uh, government of Israel. That he was meant to take that time and just spend it with the wife that he has just married. God is saying here, this is more important than that. This is more important than these other things. Things that are good, things that are blessings, things that I have given to you. This is something that all of the congregation of Israel is meant to see and to gather and to come to God. Because this is important. 
And so, hear the word of God. Witness a baptism, even as we did this morning. Partake of the Lord's Supper next Lord's Day as the people of God who are trusting in him. To lean into the promises, to believe the things that God has promised to you, to recognize that we are to come to him not as those who just merely outwardly rend our garments, but as those who rend our hearts for our sins. To come to him in a way of repentance. To blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. To go to our God with our hearts. But what hope is there if we do this? Well, that's where we see our second heading, our final heading this morning. The mercy of God at the end of verse 13 and in verse 14. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So why can we have hope? Why can we know that if we go to God in repentance that he will hear us? Why can we have confidence that we can lean into the covenant promises that God has made and truly believe them? Well, because of who God himself is. You remember that Joel is telling the people one of the worst things that has happened to them through this <coughs> plague of the locust coming is that often the things that they were to do morning and evening in the temple were just going to disappear for a while. That the grain offerings and the drink offerings are going to be no more, at least for a while, because they didn't have grain and drink to offer to God along with their sin offerings. That there was a sense of this relationship with God has been interrupted. That something has happened that's causing a problem here. And what we see here, especially in verse 14, is a hint, as we'll see it more later next week, that these things are going to be restored. This idea of a restored relationship with God, that God's people are going to come into his presence with, once again, the offerings that he is requesting of them. Why? Because of their repentance. But in another sense, why? Well, because of God's grace and mercy to his people. We have to recognize that our repentance does not force God to act. It's not as if we can pull a lever or push a button and make God do what we want him to do. God doesn't repent because we somehow won an arm wrestling match with him and force him to do something that he does not want to do. God uh, relents after we repent because he himself is gracious and merciful. Because he himself is a certain kind of God, as we see here in verses 13 and 14. The same kind of God we read about in Romans chapter 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, both Romans 8 and Joel 2 here are functioning in a specific type of way for God's people. They're functioning as creeds. Now, this afternoon, God willing, we'll recite the Apostles' Creed together, this faithful summary of what it is that Scripture teaches us about who our God is and what he has done. That's what these passages of Scripture are really doing for the people of God. They're telling us who God is, that God himself is merciful, that God himself is gracious, that God himself is loving, that he will provide for us what we need. We know, don't we, that if our hope of going before a holy God is based on ourselves in any way, that we are quite literally toast. That there would be no hope for us. That if our hope was in the sincerity of our repentance, in the perfect a way that we believe in God and that we trust in Christ, that we would be hopeless because even our repentance and our faith are imperfect in this life. 
But why can we lean into the covenant promises? Why can we trust in God to hear us as we repent, to take us into his possession as we believe in him, as we come to him in Jesus Christ? Well, because of who he himself is. Because he himself, as we read, is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Those are words that are taken especially from Exodus chapter 34. And you remember, boys and girls, perhaps that story, as Israel has already broken the covenant with God as Moses is bringing the laws to them. And they are worshiping idols at the base of Mount Sinai as God is giving the law to Israel uh, through Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. And Moses comes down and sees these things and he breaks the tablets signifying that Israel has broken their covenant with God. And in the course of making new tablets, basically renewing the covenants, Moses comes to God, Moses comes to Yahweh, and this is what we read. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. What this is saying is that the people of Israel here are dealing with not just any God, but with Yahweh. Not just any God, but the Lord who made the heavens and the earth, who had called them out of slavery in Egypt, who had called them to be his special possession. The same thing that Joel is reminding his people here thousands of years later, all these generations afterwards, that this God is still a merciful God, still a loving God, still a gracious God who will hear his people, who will respond to genuine repentance. We read that even in 1 John 1, don't we? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So how do we know that God is merciful? Well, he tells us. His word proclaims it again and again, and we see it most clearly as we look through the lens of the cross. To see the mercy and grace of God as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is hanging there for the sins of all who believe in him, as he's dying on the cross, as he's already lived for us, as he will one day rise again for us in three days. We can see God's grace and mercy most clearly in the gospel. And so as we're gathered together as God's covenant people, and in any congregation of this size, it just seems that the odds are in favor of some people have heard these things again and again and again, but don't really believe, but have not really repented of their sins, who perhaps are going along with the motions and have torn their garments but not their hearts. What is God calling us to do? Well, he's calling us to do the same thing that he calls all people to do. To repent of our sins, to return to him, to believe in Jesus Christ, to have faith in the Savior. And to ultimately know that God's mercy glorifies him. In verse 17, we see the people saying that the priests are to lead the people in this lamentation. And make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. And why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? You see, that was what was happening. <clears throat> the nations around Israel or the nations around Judah were asking, where is God? Because look at what he's done to his people. In those days, especially, every nation, it seemed, had a different God. And if things went well, it meant that God was pleased with you. If things didn't go well, it meant that God was displeased with you. And if another nation or a natural disaster came in and wiped you out, well, your God must not be strong enough. And so the people around the Israelites, the people around these people of Judah are taunting them for what God has done. 
So basically what God's people are doing are praying for God not only to forgive their sins, to bring them back into a right relationship with him, but to glorify himself. We recognize ourselves that God's salvation of a people for his great name brings him glory. And in Christ we have blessing and not wrath. And this is something that God is going to be glorified for for all eternity as he lives with us and we live with him as he is our God and we are his people in the most close sense we can imagine. And so as Joel calls us to repent, we're called not only to repent and to trust in God that he is gracious and merciful and that he will hear us, but also to trust in him to know that in the salvation of the people who repent and who call upon his name, he glorifies himself. This gives us even more assurance because your salvation is tied up with God's glory. And so as we consider these words in Joel, if you are part of a home or part of a family where things seem to go well, where you were raised in a Christian home, and perhaps you think, well, I've been at church all my life. I was in a Christian school or I was homeschooled or whatever it might be, add the list of things, and that must mean that I'm in, right? God is calling you to lean into the promises that have been given to you. The promises in your baptism, the promises that you have heard week in and week out from the pulpit, from the word of God. And if you're in a place in your life where things have not gone well or a family where things have not gone well and you're wondering, are these promises even worth holding on to? God is also calling you to lean into them. To remember that this is the God who promised these things, the God who is merciful and gracious, the God who will glorify himself, who will respond to those who repent and believe. And so don't reject God's summons to repent and believe. Remember, he's the one who summoned Israel in the first place. He's the one who summons each and every single one of us to place our trust in Christ. Don't reject this call because you will not get a better offer. This is the offer of the God who is loving and merciful who has covenant love for his people, who has made promises to us that only he will fulfill. And we know that as we trust in Christ, that he will certainly fulfill them for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for, once again, these words in the book of Joel. We know, Lord, that they can often be heavy, especially as we consider things that have happened in our own lives and the things that have gone wrong and the sin and the disbelief and all these different things that have come into ourselves and to our families and to our congregations. We know, Lord, though, that you are the one who has made these covenant promises to us, that you are gracious and merciful. May your spirit enable us to lean into these promises more and more as we go about not only our lives today, but throughout the rest of our Christian lives, that your spirit will continually remind us of who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus Christ and enable us to continually repent and believe in him. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.